Welcome to Walla Moms, where we talk about all the things that you can't talk about in Portland. If you want to have this conversation with us, tell a friend, subscribe, give us a good review on Apple Podcasts. We know from our last episode that crime is up in Portland, that shootings are up at least 800%. And we also know that Portland police numbers are at an all-time low. This is from NBC News, June 27th, 2021. After 50 police officers resign, Portland grapples with its message versus rising violence. We had 50 police officers who resigned. The article explains. It also explains that uh, tensions within the Portland Police Bureau boiled over earlier this year when 115 officers resigned or retired, leaving Oregon's largest city with roughly 800 officers. The mass exodus was the largest seen in recent memory, according to the Oregonian, which first reported the story in April. In 31 exit interviews obtained by the newspaper, police officers said they were overworked, overwhelmed, and burned out following budget cuts anti-police sentiment from some community members and activists who continue to gather in downtown Portland. It's definitely been a big hit to morale, Portland police officer Kroot Arunsek told Nightly News with Lester Holt. Morale is at an all-time low. The police precinct where Arunsek works remains boarded up after more than a year after Floyd's murder at the height of Portland protests last summer clashes with police became routinely violent with activists breaking windows and lobbing firecrackers at government buildings. Wooden planks were installed over the windows and doors of police precincts after the headquarters of Portland Police Association, the union representing rank and file members, was repeatedly vandalized. Graffiti that reads, all cops are chauvin remains outside of a county building. Arun Sex says it's unfair that Portland police are blamed for what happened to Floyd in Minneapolis. We're being held for responsible for the actions of an officer that's across the country, he said. I don't think that's fair. I don't think that's accurate. Across the country, police departments are seeing unprecedented uptick in retirements and resignations. So I think one question is, what do we do about the rising crime rate do we need to add more police? I've heard from many of you who say police do not stop crime, police do not solve crime. I think that the jury is still out on that data. There is data, for instance, this is from June 20th, 2020, and it's from NBCNews.com. It's called Chicago Crime and the Complicated Truth Behind Defund the Police Efforts by Sophia Simi Ali. And this article discusses data in regard to police and whether they solve crime, whether they reduce crime. In the body of the article, it states there's a large body of evidence that conclusively shows that more police resources and manpower does reduce crime. And that is an empirical fact we have to reckon with, said Max Capiston, Senior Research Director of the University of Chicago Crime Lab. I'm going to step away from this article for a minute and say, you know, I think a first step would be police reform. You guys know how I feel about public sector unions. If we got rid of the police union, I would love to see what would happen with police 
brutality, police violence, overall police complaints, lawsuits against police. The problem with that union is it protects them. It shields them, just like any union. Its primary purpose is to keep and retain and defend its members no matter what the cost. That's its primary goal. Its primary goal is to ensure its members retain their jobs no matter what they did. If they did something wrong, even if they indiscriminately killed a black man, they get a union rep who defends them aggressively. That is the union's job. So if we got rid of the police union, I would be fascinated to see what happens. Now, the problem is we have no data on this really because every police, uh, every city has a police force with a union. And we have yet to see the disintegration of public sector unions. I think union support generally is probably universally up. It's probably universally accepted that people need unions, uh, potentially even police unions. But I do think that this last year, if there's one good thing that can be said about it, it might be that now's the time to get rid of police unions. What if we don't defund police, but we, we defund their union or we disband their union? Forget defund the police and abolish the police. Focus on abolish and defund their public sector unions because that's how the quote unquote bad apples stay in the bunch. Here's another idea. Instead of defund the police, how about we just fund, fund police and programs? Instead of taking money out of the police budget and putting it into social programs like these um, you know, the, the conflict interrupters and victim counseling and youth programs, which are all good things, which are some of the things that the county is looking at to reduce gun violence. Now, I don't think that that will imminently reduce gun violence to the extent it puts a dent in it. It'll be years, decades, possibly even generations before that happens. So what if we both fund police and we fund those programs. That way, since we know that it's an empirical fact that police help solve and reduce crime based on this data in this NBC article, apparently it's conclusive. And this is from the University of Chicago Crime Lab, uh, that police resources and manpower reduces crime and it's something that the defunders have to reckon with. I think we just, the message is fund. And I think that would be a, a really popular message. That's a message that the Democrats can run with. I do think the Democrats are going to have a lot of trouble continuing to ride on the defund message. And to the extent mainstream politicians have not shed the word defund, my guess is they they will have to because overall in the United States, outside of places like San Francisco and Portland, the word defund is scary to a lot of people. And I think for good reason. This NBC article 
quotes Thomas Apt, who wrote a book called Bleeding Out, The Devastating Consequences of Urban Violence and a Bold New Plan for Peace in the Streets. What Apt, who's on the Council on Criminal Justice, said is, and this is in the NBC News article, the defund the police narrative unnecessarily puts police and communities in competition with each other for funding. It shouldn't be an either-or question. It should be a both-and question. In Chicago and across the country, police are a necessary but not sufficient aspect of violence reduction. He said, we absolutely need more anti-violence programs that do not rely on the police, but we need those in addition to the police, not instead of the police. What need re-examining are police violence and accountability. He said, strengthening internal discipline, flagging questionable conduct through early warning systems and establishing accountability protocols, such as requiring a report every time a gun is pointed, all can play positive roles in reducing excessive use of force, he said. He said that the most critical thing to keep in mind when considering policy or budgetary changes are the communities that will be most affected, the communities that are bearing the brunt of all the well-placed mistrust and anger at law enforcement and the justice system. Those same communities are also faced with tremendous amounts of violence, he said. They are the ones caught in the middle. And that's why I think the plan is fund. Please, yes, fund the community and social programs, but also fund the police. Don't defund the police. Now we cut the police budget. What if we restored and increased their funding while also funding community programs? We can, we can do all these things that the county wants to do. We can increase the, the prosecutors. I think that's great. We can continue to confiscate illegal guns from people who shouldn't have them. We can do the violence interrupters. We can do the youth programs. We can do the victim counseling. I think all that's great, but we have got to do something that solves crime imminently. We've got to do something that doesn't take generations to implement and to see results from. And we've got to take steps that are data supported. And an increase in the number of police is data supported as long as we also turn an eye to reform. And we can implement those kinds of reforms that APT talked about in the NBC News article, but I think we think more drastically. I think we can appease at least parts of both sides of this issue if we get rid of police unions and fund the police. This is an article from The Atlantic by Connor Friedersdorf. And it's August 8th, 2021, criminal justice reformers chose the wrong slogan, defund the police is a disaster, under policing is a form of oppression too. This is the body of the article. After George Floyd's murder, when sweeping criminal justice reforms seem more possible than ever, many Black Lives Matter activists and their allies settled on a rallying cry, defund the police. That choice was a disaster. The slogan, shorthand for cutting spending on law enforcement and redirecting it towards social services or for more radical proponents moving toward eventual police abolition, is a political liability largely due to justified fears that if implemented, it would lead to many more murders, assaults, and other violent crimes disproportionately harming victims in America's most marginalized communities. In Chicago, the public radio station WBEZ's analysis of 19 months 
of murder investigation records showed that when the victim was white, 47% of the cases were solved. For Hispanics, the rate was about 33%. These are unsolved murders that they're talking. So these are murders. For Hispanics, the rate was about 33%. When the victim was African-American, it was less than 22%. Another study in Indianapolis found the same kind of disparities. Eliminating such disparities ought to be a priority for all Americans, including anti-racist activists. But that is unlikely so long as Black Lives Matter leaders and their allies focus on defunding the police. In March, a USA Today poll found that nationwide only 18% of respondents supported the movement known as defund the police, and 58% said they opposed it, adding that only 28% of black Americans, and 34% of Democrats were in favor of it. 28% of black Americans are in favor of defund the police. So I'm going to step away from the article for a minute. What's fascinating about this is how would the white people in Portland, the white activists who want to defund the police, how would they respond to that? Would they say, this is what's best for you? Portland is a white echo chamber of paternalism cloaked under the guise of anti-racism. It's like all the white people in Portland using the term Latinx. We know what's best, and we're going to use that term to describe Hispanic people, even though they don't like that term. And that is That is fundamentally well-documented. This is from the Pew Research Center. It's from August 11th, 2020. About one in four U.S. Hispanics have heard of Latinx, but just 3% use it. Again, that's the Pew Research Center. So in Portland, I think what most of my white progressive friends would say is, I'm going to continue to use the word Latinx regardless Because I don't want people to think that I'm a Trump voter. And I don't want people to think that I'm racist. What are we supposed to say? What do we have to say? I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want anybody to think I'm a Republican. Oh my God, what would happen then? I mean, think, what would happen What, you're going to lose all your friends? Is that what's going to happen? You're not saying you voted for Trump. You're just using like the word Hispanic instead of Latinx. I mean, according to the Pew Research Center, that tends to be the term that they favor. Um, This is from that same Pew Research article, August 11th, 2020. A majority say they prefer Hispanic, 61%. To describe the Hispanic or Latino population in the U.S., 29% say they prefer Latino. Should we use what they prefer? Isn't that what we should do if we're really progressive and anti-racist? Shouldn't we do what the marginalized group prefers? Or should we do what we prefer because our other white friends might think that we voted for Trump? or that we didn't read Kendi, or that we didn't read D'Angelo, or that we're not supporters of Coates. We're not real anti-racists. 
In fact, it's worse. We have to put on our cloth mask outside of the soccer game and we have to use the term Latinx because if we don't do those things, we are racist and we're spreading COVID, right? I mean, Portland, Portland is so oppressive. But really, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, I haven't lost friends for expressing my views outwardly to them. Every single one of my friends knows exactly what I think about all these issues. The reason that I'm anonymous is because I don't want my home and my family destroyed or doxxed by Antifa and criminal nut jobs who engage in violence and crime with impunity in the city of Portland if you say something they don't like. But those aren't my friends. I mean, those aren't like my my colleagues or the people that I actually work with or anything like that. I mean, my friends know exactly where I stand on all these issues and to the extent they disagree with me. And because I live in Portland, many, many, many of them do. We have productive conversations and we're good. In fact, I think we're better because we can listen to each other and we can have those conversations. I'm not friends with anybody I can't have those kinds of conversations with. And to the extent I can't have those kinds of conversations with people, I don't have personal relationships with them because it's, they're, they're uninteresting to me because they don't, they're not able to think critically or hear other points of view and they engage in the fallacy of black and white thinking and cognitive dissonance and they live in their Portland echo chamber and that's uninteresting to me. So try it out. You know, if you're so inclined, if you're brave enough and you're out and about, feel free to use the term Hispanic and let me know what happens. Because apparently that is the term that is preferred. Wouldn't that make you more anti-racist than the white person who uses the term Latinx? Because they think that's the term that should be used. And wouldn't it be more anti-racist to not support defunding the police. Why? Because black people don't support it. 28% of black Americans support defunding the police. So what is white Portland's, I am dying to know what white Portland's response is to that. By the way, it's so interesting to me that Latinx ends in an X. When are we going to tell all the white Portlanders using the term Latinx that Spanish is literally a gendered language? There's no non-binary in Spanish. The nouns are gendered. The language is literally divided, is literally divided into masculine, (laughs) into masculine and feminine. When, when are we going to tell all the white people in Portland that Latinx doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense? Maybe never. You know, maybe we just let them look like dumbasses and keep using it. But we don't have to use it. We're good. We're good. We don't have to be pro-defunding the police. Why? Because it seems like you're a better ally if you listen to what the 
marginalized group that you're allegedly protecting by defending the police is telling you that they want. They don't want that. So isn't it more anti-racist to fund? Why isn't the platform just fun? Portlanders love funding things. They love taxes. They love pouring money into absolutely everything, especially if it's somebody else's money, if it's somebody with a six-figure income and and above. They absolutely love it. I think it would be popular. I think we fund police, defund and abolish their unions, but fund police, fund police reform, and fund those community programs that the county is apparently going to be doing. Continuing with the Atlantic article, most black Americans favor more better trained cops on the streets of their neighborhood, not fewer cops in departments with fewer resources to train them. You'd think anti-racists would shift their focus. Now, stepping away from the article for a minute, again, I know a lot of people are saying right now, look, police don't prevent or stop crime. They show up after the crimes occurred. Well, according to this same Atlantic article, contrary to those talking points, studies have found that bigger police forces do tend to produce reductions in crime. In the average American city, the NYU economist Morgan Williams told NPR, larger police forces result in black lives saved at about twice the rate of white lives saved. And most people want the police to show up after the fact when they report a crime in hopes that they will arrive quickly, take a report, and bring the criminal who victimized them to justice. Stepping away from the article, these are the things that we don't have in Portland. First of all, the 911 calls are not promptly answered. In fact, people are on hold for way too long. Police don't arrive quickly. They're usually responding to some other homicide in the city, and there aren't enough of them. And it's too hard to bring these criminals to justice because we don't have enough police bodies. And when you hear things like larger police forces result in black lives saved at about twice the rate of white lives saved, wouldn't it be anti-racist to fund the police? Back to the Atlantic article, as the progressive journalist Matthew Iglesias recently noted, just the recent increases in annual homicides of black people are greater in scale than all annual police killings of black Americans. Nearly half homicide victims are black. Now that's a far greater disproportionality than those killed by the police. According to Mapping Police Violence, there were 1,126 people killed by police officers in 2020. By contrast, the increase in murders in 2020 added 1,907 victims just in the 51 big cities that we have data on. Mapping Police Violence puts on their website that black people were 28% of those killed by police in 2020, despite being only 13% of the population. And that's a lot, but nearly half of the homicide victims are black, and that is a greater disproportionality, guys. The absence, this is that Atlantic article, the absence of policing yields not a safe space where marginalized people thrive, but a nasty, brutish place where violent actors either push people around with impunity or are met with violence by someone who forces them to stop. 
When people are stripped of legal protection and placed in desperate straits, they are more, not less likely to turn on each other. Lawless settings are terrifying. If people can do whatever they want to each other, there are always enough bullies to make it ugly. That's Portland, folks. I'm going to step away from this article. That is Portland. And there's going to be a fair amount of vigilanteism. And in fact, I think an increase in that. And that's already started happening in Laurelhurst with the homeless camps. This is from Willamette Week. It is from August 29th, 2021. The headline is, A string of neighbor emails show a mounting vigilance of homeless people returning to Laurelhurst Park. Residents of the Laurelhurst neighborhood have been closely tracking the possible return of homeless campers to two streets bordering Laurelhurst Park since the controversial camp was swept late last month. Emails exchanged between members of the Laurelhurst Neighborhood Association since the July 29th sweep have been increasing in frequency and urgency, showing a determination to not let camps reestablish a presence along Southeast Oak Street and 37th Avenue. Tensions between people living on the sidewalks and other neighborhood residents are common in Portland. But the surveillance by Laurelhurst residents has grown so intense that last week a homeless camper called 911 on a local homeowner. Dozens of emails were shared with the Willamette Week staff since the sweep in late July. The emails show a vigilant group of neighbors who have been closely documenting activity at the park they surround to make sure homeless people don't resume camping there and an increased alarm that campers are slowly moving back in. The email started as fairly mundane after the sweep of the large camp on July 29th. Neighbors alerting each other to people cutting down the orange flexible fencing that the rapid response BioClean, the city's sweep contractor, put up along the sidewalks to prevent campers from repitching tents. The fence came down three times within one week, according to the emails, and neighbors urged one another to document such activity if they witnessed it and report it to police. Each time the fences came down, staff from Rapid Response re-erected it. On August 3rd, one neighbor wrote in an email, do you not think I expect any of you to sit out there in your cars guarding the fence? I mention this to give you all a heads up. When in that area at night, keep your eyes and phone ready. A photo of these jokers taking down the fence would be delightful in all caps and useful. On August 4th, the same woman, the Neighborhood Association Safety Chair, TJ Browning, wrote, less than half an hour ago, three women dressed in safety vests took down the fencing around the annex, rolled it up, and threw it in an unmarked truck. When questioned by neighbors, they claimed to be with the city. A neighbor trying to video them was almost run down by them. They were not, in all caps, city workers. I am concerned something is planned for tonight, possibly a move-in. She added, please, anyone who knows anyone in the police who you can call, please let them know what is happening. Over the next several weeks, dozens of emails shared with Willamette Week show an increased neighborhood effort to report the returning car campers to police, the Portland Bureau of Transportation, and park rangers. We need to stay vigilant and report, 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 Browning wrote at the end of her email on August 23rd. Emails show that neighbors became aware that a sweep of the camp at Sunnyside Park would take place on August 25th. A portion of the displaced Laurelhurst campers had moved to Sunnyside. One email read, tomorrow keep your eyes open for any attempted movement of campers back to the annex and or park report immediately the annex is part of laurelhurst park south of oak street and west of caesar e chavez boulevard an email sent from browning warned of a planned racial justice march the following day saying that demonstrators could be armed and confrontational i strongly advise you to stay away from the park tomorrow during this event marchers at similar events have open carried long rifles 
Now that's a fact that Willamette Week is reporting. That is not from Browning's email. So I am stepping away from this article for a minute to explain that the fact that marchers at racial justice rallies have open carry long rifles is a fact reported by Willamette Week as a fact, not this neighbor's opinion in Laurelhurst. That march and the po- back to the article, that march and the possible return of campers from Sunnyside to Laurelhurst seem to escalate the watchfulness of Laurelhurst residents. Starting last week, the emails document each new tent and car moving back onto the street. God, that would be a lot. An email sent Friday by a neighbor to all city commissioners, the mayor, and other city officials urged them to take action. I do hope that the city takes decisive action today to restore the fencing and remove the campers immediately. Leaving this not dealt with over the weekend will only result in the fourth iteration of an unmanaged, unruly, dangerous homeless encampment with the urban terrorist group Stop the Sweeps dictating the rules. The emails kept pouring in on Friday afternoon, neighbors updating each other on cars and tents, moving back onto the streets and into the annex. One neighbor advised others on how to submit photos to the city's homeless report portal. I suggest you follow up with all photographs to show the scale of this in such a short space of time. That's how the confrontation sharpened to the point where a homeless person called 911 on Browning. Browning alleged in an email that one of the campers became aggressive with her and two others who went to pick up trash on August 27th. Immediately, Robbie came, this is from her email, and aggressively began yelling and threatening us. It was ugly. As I continued to pick up litter, he threatened to call the police. I said to do it. We all waited as he told his fanciful tale to 911. We would interject some facts occasionally, she wrote. Eventually, three police cars arrived. The campers were told to leave the parking strip or be arrested for trespassing. Now, according to this Willamette Week article, the campers say that they were being harassed and that their possessions were being taken and under the guise of Laurelhurst residents picking up trash. The homeless people told Willamette Week, this is from the article, they kept grabbing our stuff and saying it was garbage. They were trying to tear the tent down and saying we were trespassing. They were filming the entire thing even after we asked them to stop. So stepping away from the article, in summary, the homeless people called 911, but the officers didn't make an arrest or determine that a crime had taken place. And they asked the homeless people to get back outside of the fence. And it sounds like they complied. So if people are starting to tear down these tents that are in their neighborhood and just bag all these homeless people stuff that's around it and just get into altercations with them and the homeless people are calling 911, that's where we're at. Citizens are taking things into their own hands and it's leading to a fair amount, I would say, of despair and decrepitude within this city. And it's going to be particularly profound as we go into the winter months because this is a very gray, rainy, unsunny, dark city, particularly during the winter. It's like fucking Gotham. And it's going to be so much worse with all of this crime and these homicides. 
just really dystopian. Speaking of dystopian, let's talk about COVID. So I mentioned to you guys in a previous podcast that there is a study that shows that surgical masks have some benefit, but really just for older adults. Now, this study was a large randomized trial led by researchers at Stanford Medicine and Yale. It was done in Bangladesh, and it's the results were so interesting and very strange. The key takeaways are that the surgical mass showed an 11% reduction. So it's up to you whether you think that moves the needle or not. Um, they only showed effectiveness for ages 50 and older. And cloth masks, we already know, and all of you dear listeners of this podcast know, were useless. Mic drop. So you'd think that this might be interesting information for the city of Portland and Multnomah County to relay to its citizens, given that we have an indoor and an outdoor mask mandate. Cloth masks are worthless. Also interesting, this trial, this study, given the design, it was measuring the effect of a community intervention approach, including mask use and physical distancing. So there actually was not a control group that did not include physical distancing. I think that is critical. So it is really hard to know how much masks help without the distancing. But the point is the surgical masks really only showed an 11% reduction. That's marginally statistically significant. Of course, cloth mask interventions are not statistically significant at all. No other age group except those 50 and older showed a reduction in COVID with surgical mask use. Also strange with this study is that physical distancing was higher in the mask villages than the control villages. So it's possible that extra physical distancing contributed to the end results of this trial. It's really hard to know. So the upshot is if you're 50 and over and you would like to decrease your risk of COVID by, you know, move the needle by 11%, wear a surgical mask. Knock it off with the cloth masks. Even better, as Dr. Osterholm would tell you, wear an N95. Please remember that Bangladesh study only related to adults. This is an article in the Atlantic called The Downsides of Masking Young Students Are Real. This is by Vinay Prasad, who's a hematologist and oncologist and an associate professor of epidemiology and biostatistics at UC San Francisco from September 2nd, 2021. Scientists have an obligation to strive for honesty and on the question of whether kids should wear masks in schools, particularly preschools and elementary schools, here's what I conclude. The potential educational harms of mandatory masking policies are much more firmly established, at least at this point, than their possible benefits in stopping the spread of COVID-19 in schools. To justify continued masking of school kids with no end date in sight, we have to prove that masks benefit kids and at what ages, states and communities that are considering masking policies just to be safe should recognize that being overly cautious has a cost while the benefits are uncertain. For most able-bodied adults, masks 
in public indoor settings pose only minor inconveniences, but children who even amid the worrisome Delta variant surge are experiencing serious outcomes from COVID-19 at far lower rates than people in older age groups are, have different needs and vulnerabilities than adults. Early childhood is a crucial period where humans develop cultural, language, and social skills, including the ability to detect emotion on other people's faces. Social interactions with friends, parents, and caregivers are integral to fostering children's growth and well-being. No scientific consensus exists about the wisdom of mandatory masking rules for school children. The World Health Organization, which recommends that children 12 and older wear masks under the same circumstances that adults do, specifically advises against masking kids ages 5 and younger. Many European nations have been taking the agency's advice. The United Kingdom has emphasized rapid testing instead of masking and has not required elementary school students or their teachers to wear a face covering. In the United States, though, currently CDC and American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines call kids call for kids ages two and up to wear a mask in indoor school or daycare settings. The CDC specifically makes exceptions for napping and eating. In other words, the prevailing wisdom in the U.S. calls for two to four-year-olds to wear masks in daycare for six or more hours while they are awake but go unmasked while sleeping side-by-side in the same room. Shielding children from all coronavirus exposure is difficult for another practical reason. Little kids fidget with their masks, a health recommendation that takes little account of how human beings act and what they need is unlikely to be successful. For instance, a diet that told you to eat just two carrots a day would theoretically result in dramatic weight loss. In practice, such a regimen could starve you of nutrients that your body requires. Moreover, overly strict diets often result in no weight loss at all because nobody can stick to them. Similarly, mask mandates can be challenging for little children to follow and deprive them of the stimuli they need. In addition to recommending masks for young kids, CDC guidelines also urge masks for most vaccinated caregivers who work in infant daycare centers. This practice also deviates from standard practice in other nations, including the UK. Many studies support the importance of babies seeing caregivers' faces. And prior to the arrival of COVID-19, many American professional organizations, including the AAP, strongly agreed. That's the American Academy of Pediatrics. So prior to COVID-19, they agreed that babies needed to see caregivers' faces. At least some fears about masking are exaggerated. Despite claims of some critics, kids who wear a face covering are unlikely to suffer any meaningful problems exhaling carbon dioxide or inhaling oxygen. However, some mask wearers who exert themselves may subjectively feel short of breath. Unfortunately, some school districts are brushing aside that concern too. K-8 schools in affluent and highly educated Palo Alto, California require kids to mask even outdoors at recess. That would be the same in Portland. San Diego schools recently announced an outdoor mask mandate as well, yet scientists have known for some time that outdoor transmission is exceedingly rare, and many experts believe that outdoor masking is misguided. When masks are required in outdoor settings, kids may experience limitations in play, exercise tolerance, and socialization, and for what gain? The benefits of mask requirements in schools might seem self-evident, They have to help contain the coronavirus, right? 
but that may not be so. In Spain, masks are used in kids ages six and older. The authors of one study there examined the risk of viral spread at all ages. If masks provided a large benefit, then the transmission rate among five-year-olds would be far higher than the rate among six-year-olds. The results don't show that. Instead, they show that transmission rates, which were low among the youngest kids, steadily increased with age rather than dropping sharply for older children subject to the face covering requirement. This suggests that masking kids in school does not provide a major benefit and might provide none at all. And yet many officials prefer to double down on masking mandates as if the fundamental policy were sound and only the people have failed. Before limiting the amount of face-to-face human contact that children experience during many of their waking hours, policymakers should be acutely aware of what children could lose. Unfortunately, the downside of school mask requirements for children has been difficult to assess systematically because until this pandemic, face-covering policies were never previously imposed on so many children for such a long period of time. Longitudinal studies cannot be performed on long-term outcomes because there are no children in prior generations to study. In the absence of systematic research on the costs and benefits of mass requirements for kids, the issue has been transformed into a right-left political battle. In addition to masking two-year-olds, the CDC recommends the vaccination of people ages 12 and older because both recommendations come from a respected federal agency. Supporters of both are likely to say they are quote-unquote following the science. But the evidence that supports vaccination is indisputable in the form of multiple randomized studies, whereas the evidence to support school mask mandates for young kids is fragmentary at best. The problem with overselling unproven recommendations is that it risks turning people away from well-grounded ones. Unfortunately, scientists have failed to conduct the kind of randomized trials that can provide more reliable answers. Here, schools, counties, or districts would be assigned mandatory or optional masking policy, and researchers could simply track their experience to determine which schools had more coronavirus spread. Kids wouldn't be banned or prohibited from wearing masks, but rather the policy of making all kids wear masks would be rigorously tested. In mid-March 2020, few could argue against erring on the side of caution, but nearly 18 months later, we owe it to children and their parents to answer the question properly, do the benefits of masking kids in school outweigh the downsides? The honest answer in 2021 remains that we don't know for sure. This COVID epidemic has been ridiculously, completely, and totally politicized. And both sides are guilty of it. This is from the Brookings Institute, which is in general a left-wing think tank, but centrist enough that it's, I consider it reliable and quotable material for Walla Mom's podcast. And as you'll hear, to the extent the Brookings Institute leans left, this article that I'm about to talk to you about highly criticizes us and criticizes the left in really interesting analytical ways that I think are absolutely reflected in Portland, Oregon. This is from uh, December 22nd, 2020, how misinformation is distorting COVID policies and behaviors. 
Political affiliation has deeply shaped how people understand and respond to the pandemic. The economic damage resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic could have been considerably less severe if the public were exposed to less sensational and distorting media. Disagreement on basic facts and risk by age group. When asked to estimate the share of deaths by age group, the average American dramatically overestimates the share of COVID-19 deaths from people aged 24 and younger, putting it around 8%, when in fact, it was 0.1% through August and has remained close to that level since. Meanwhile, the elderly, those 65 and older, had accounted for 81% of deaths at the time of the survey and 79% through November. Democrats were further off than Republicans and more likely to overstate the risks to young people even after accounting for age, race, gender, geographic, and educational differences. The fact that COVID-19 poses a much higher mortality risk to the old than the young was the most clear feature of the virus from very early on. It is remarkable that many Americans remain misinformed about this basic factor and continue to see it through a political lens. Democrats, yes, are more likely to understand that COVID can be spread by people without symptoms and more accurately assess the overall mortality risk of COVID-19 is more severe compared to other common causes of death, such as influenza and automobile accidents. Stepping away from this article for a minute, the kinds of things Democrats have been right about COVID, we on the left already know that because head is on a swivel, especially if you have any critical thinking skills whatsoever, and you are looking for signs of political bias in any kind of of messaging that you're getting on COVID, particularly in super oppressively left and scared out of their wits cities like Portland, Oregon. Living in this city as a leftist with some critical thinking skills is very tricky. And it's clear to me that there are a few things we've gotten right, like distancing works, like COVID is serious, COVID is scary, especially if you're 65 and older. Um, but a lot of it we've gotten wrong. And I'd say that these mask mandates, for instance, which there is absolutely no data to support that they decrease COVID whatsoever, is certainly one of those. Back to the article. The U.S. public is also deeply misinformed about the severity of the virus for the average infected person. In December, we asked, what percentage of people who have been infected by the coronavirus need to be hospitalized? The correct answer is not precisely known, but it is highly likely to be between 1% and 5%, according to the best available estimates, and it is unlikely to be much higher or lower. Less than 1 in 5 U.S. adults, 18%, give a correct answer of between 1% and 5%. Democrats are much more likely than Republicans to overestimate this harm. 41% of Democrats and 28% of Republicans answered that half or more of those infected by COVID-19 need to be hospitalized. (laughs) Half or more? Republicans, (laughs) Republicans were also 
far more likely to get the correct answer, with 26% correctly identifying the risk, compared to just 10% of Democrats. These errors in factual knowledge appear to have important real-world implications. Those who overestimate risk to young people or hold an exaggerated sense of risk upon infection are more likely to favor closing schools, restaurants, and other businesses. Later in the article, just over half of U.S. adults say they would be willing to get the COVID-19 vaccine, according to Gallup data, though the number appears to be increasing. When asked why they wouldn't want the vaccine, concerns about a rush timeline and safety account for roughly half of those unwilling to get it. Stepping away from the article, you guys know I am no Donald Trump fan, and that's an understatement, but... Let's give the devil his due. Operation Warp Speed was a Trump administration-led effort to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, and it worked. That was under Trump. It was one of the most extraordinary scientific successes by a government-led effort. And I think it's important that we recognize that, and I think it's important that we understand that there are also left-wing people, Brett Weinstein, Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan was a Bernie supporter, you guys, who are vaccine hesitant. And a lot of them actually live in Portland, Oregon. These are the same types of people that don't like flu vaccines. They're the same types of people who don't like fluoride in their water, hence why we don't have fluoride in our water. These types of people are the same types of people who distrusted Trump when he rolled out Operation Warp Speed and who it's possible are not getting vaccinated because that was a program that was administered under the Trump administration. And that administration was routinely and correctly accused of political malpractice And given that Operation Warp Speed was rolled out during his administration, I don't think we should be surprised about vaccine skepticism, even if it comes from the left. In fact, we all probably recall that when Trump said he was going to roll out a vaccine, Kamala Harris, our now vice president, at the time vice presidential nominee, told CNN that she wouldn't trust a vaccine that was rolled out by Trump. Of course, it is hilarious that there are all these right-wingers who do not want to take the vaccine, and yet it was, and a lot of these are Trump-loving people, and yet it was rolled out under Trump. Trump is vaccinated. Abbott is, I mean, a lot of the people they love are vaccinated. Abbott is vaccinated. DeSantis is vaccinated. The vaccine is just one small example of the way that COVID has been politicized. Back to this Brookings Institute article. People exposed to alarming news about record high cases or hospitalizations were significantly less likely to support reopening restaurants or bars for indoor services and significantly less likely to support reopening schools, elementary or secondary, or universities to in-person learning. The experimental conditions produce a large range of opinions, even within political groups. The percentage of Biden voters who support reopening of schools in person to in-person learning is as low 
as 43% to as high as 60%, depending on which new segment we assign them to read before asking them the question. Reporting to people that new cases are at record levels reduce support more than any group, whereas telling people about the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation in favor of in-person schooling resulted in the largest support. The range was just as large for Trump voters, 64% to 80%. The implication is that one can easily induce massive gaps in public opinion, a 37 percentage point gap if Biden's supporters are given only alarming news and Trump supporters are given only reassuring news. Now, stepping away from the article, obviously this is a holdover of Trump. He was able to just say shit, support it or not, a lot of the time not supported, and get away with it. Shane Gillis, who was recently canceled by SNL, has a fabulous free stand-up set on YouTube. It's Shane Gillis live in Austin. You can find it for free because he was canceled. He was worried that nobody would pay for it. And it's hilarious. He talks about how we should go back and watch those debates. He's like, it's crazy. The first debate, nobody wanted Trump. There were people on the right who were booing him and talking about getting that clown off the stage. And then the minute he started spewing bullshit, even though a lot of us knew it was bullshit, people went crazy. They were clapping for him. I mean, somebody would recite a fact and he'd just go, wrong. Or somebody would cite a piece of data and he'd go, incorrect. And people went crazy for that. Obviously, this is a holdover from Trump. But the problem is, I think the left is suddenly prone to histrionic behavior and is having a lot of trouble with cognitive behavioral therapy, critical thinking type skills. We engage in a lot of fallacious black and white thinking. We engage in a fair amount of cognitive dissonance. And the idea that reading scary stories about COVID makes us want to shut down schools and shut down businesses is very, very scary. Continuing with the Brickings Institute article, we find that information also has direct effects on consumer behavior. When looking at whether someone is likely to eat out at a restaurant within the next month, the experimental results are similar with large swings of 14 percentage points for Biden supporters, depending on which news story they're given. So 25% versus 39.1%. And 18 percentage points swing among Trump voters, 71% versus 53%. Because, stepping away from the article, because I'm on the left, it is much easier for me to criticize myself and my own people because I am, I become aware that I start to engage in that kind of thinking too. I start to engage in panic behavior without my very carefully developed via weekly therapy for many decades, cognitive behavioral skills. I don't, ask myself critical questions when I read something really scary about a kid dying of COVID. Even if it's just one kid and it's an anecdotal story, I feel those same inclinations. I feel my breath catching. I feel myself panicking. The result could be to close a school, but it shouldn't be. The result could be to do an outdoor mask mandate, but it shouldn't be. Those policy decisions 
should be based on data, not scary news articles, not whether or not it was something Trump supported, but data. Back to the Brookings article. People's information diet plays a crucial role here. In the first and second rounds of our survey conducted July through August, we found that those who get their news primarily from social media had the most erroneous perception of the risk of death by age. Moreover, by randomly assigning respondents to be presented with different information, we found that people receiving more complete information about the risks were more willing to reopen daycare centers and restaurants before a vaccine. Stepping away from the article, this is exactly what I'm talking about. We have become unable to think critically and to ferret out data and to throw away these scary articles in the New York Times profiling kids who've died of COVID and talking about teachers who've died of COVID. We get scared by that and we panic and we form policy decisions around that. And that is not good policy decision-making behavior. Policy-making decisions need to be based on data. Back to the Brookings Institute. In our November and December data round, we found that people who maintain a mis- mixed diet of both liberal and conservative news sources had a higher consumption levels as measured by our consumption index defined below than those with a more partisan diet. In other words, they were more likely to purchase away from home services. The result holds after controlling for political party and other relevant demographic variables. Overall, our study suggests that better information and a less partisan, more fact-based public debate could help lead more people to both take steps and to stop the spread of the virus and to safely engage in more economic activity. Likewise, objective and transparent information about the vaccine's safety and effectiveness will drive up acceptance and accelerate economic recovery. Stepping away from the article, public debate. That is something that is absolutely shut down in this town. You cannot talk about whether or not masks work. You cannot talk about the relative risk of COVID if you're under the age of 65. You cannot talk about children unless you acknowledge the brainwashed, panicky mindset that children are vectors. Now, I know schools are open, but that was a hard one fight here in Portland. Those schools were closed for over a year. That is a absolute disgrace. That never should have happened. This outdoor mask mandate is bullshit and unscientific, and it focuses on the wrong things. We're spending time, energy, and money policing people and focusing on whether or not they're wearing their worthless cloth mask at an outdoor soccer game, as opposed to educating the public about vaccination efforts and being able to compare data and engage in public debate about these things. We can't talk about it. We're supposed to just mask up and comply. We're not allowed to say that cloth masks don't work. Otherwise, we're anti-maskers. We're not allowed to talk about the very real flaws in the Bangladesh study. Otherwise, we're anti-maskers. We're not allowed to talk about why kids should be unmasked in schools because then we want teachers to be uh, in body bags, as they love to say. I can't teach from a body bag. 
we can't talk about Brett Weinstein or Joe Rogan because they're quote unquote anti-vaxxers. And we can't talk about very real concerns that they might have. Um, I know a Duke-educated PhD scientist who is unvaccinated. I don't understand the science well enough to debate her in regard to the data or scientific analysis, but I she's smarter than I am, and she says that she's read the studies, and she's young, and she's healthy, and that's the decision she's making for herself. And I let her, I sit and I listen, I let her talk about it, and I engage her opinion as a valid opinion as opposed to a Fox News bobblehead or a, a Trumper or Trump on the debate stage calling Marco Rubio little Marco. That's not how I treat her or talk to her because, in fact, she's an intelligent person who has is claiming to make the right decision for her to the extent there is good data on vaccines, and there's plenty of it. She claims to have read it and know about it, and so there's not much of a public debate that I can engage in with her because I, I can't read the science in any kind of real way or in the way that she can, but we can talk about it. We can talk about it and we should talk about it. And this article says we have got to talk about it. And that is the only way to get to a clear and good policy on COVID in the United States. That is why we have these patchwork, stupid little policies in all the states, depending on whether they're red or blue. Back to the Brookings Institute article, many workers, roughly 42%, are unable to work remotely or at least have not been so far in the pandemic. The closing of schools due to in-person learning compounds the difficulty many workers have performing their jobs from home. During September and October, 47% of parents report that their child is learning entirely from home with a lower percentage preferring that arrangement. Parents whose children are learning from home are much more likely to be out of the labor force than parents with children attending school in person. Unemployment rates are also higher for parents whose children are learning from home relative to those who are doing schooling either partly or entirely in person. The combined impact of school closures and higher unemployment has also exacerbated economic and social disparities. Workers with lower education levels have been disproportionately affected by job losses as they tend to work in the hardest hit service sectors and children from lower income households have suffered a more severe setback in terms of learning gap with the switch to remote learning. Let's step away from this article. So you know who's suffering? This is like that piece by Matt Welch in Reason Magazine, the equity mess. That's exactly, this is data supporting I mean, Matt had plenty of data supporting his article, but this is more data supporting Matt's article that guess who those shutdowns hurt? Guess who they hurt the most? The people we in the blue states profess to care the most about. Minorities and economically disadvantaged people, and as Matt Welch's article says, particularly women. You know who those shutdowns hurt? BIPOC mama. BIPOC mama is who was hurt by the shutdowns disproportionately. Do you know who benefited? The white white people. The white people, the desk jockeys, the people working remotely from home. 
Those are the people who who benefited, whose fear ruled policymaking decisions, and they could sit in their houses comfortably with their cloth masks on and enjoy the comfort of and their privilege, their white privilege of working from home. These are the these are the same people who claim to be anti-racist. These are the same people who profess to care about the BIPOC communities that they so disproportionately hurt with these shutdowns and these school closures because they were unable to think critically and analyze data and they engage in this echo chamber of cognitive dissonance and they cannot critically look at facts. It's black and white thinking and it's panic behavior. Back to the article. The evidence so far finds very low COVID-19 infections among enrolled school children and contagion rates for their teachers that are similar to non-teachers, as Emily Oster has discussed. Side note, Emily Oster is a really great um, data analyst. She has a substack. She, I think she's an economist, but she is very good at compiling data. Back to the article. These considerations have led a number of countries to reopen schools. As our experiment reveals, this is another area where providing more complete and balanced information can facilitate an approach to schools opening that would bring benefits to both working parents and children, especially those from disadvantaged backgrounds. We have found that informing adults about Emily Oster's work leads to a significant increase in support for reopening schools. The end of the article says, the most important lesson from our research is that a well-informed public, freed from both exaggerated fear and trivialization of a dangerous threat, is more likely to support optimal policies and engage in the behaviors needed to both maintain safety and unnecessary economic damage. And so that's the end of the article. And I would add that a more well-informed, critically thinking public who isn't politicizing COVID is probably better able to direct their time, energy, and resources to things that work, like vaccine education, like making the vaccine available for everybody so that when you go to get your flu shot and you're standing in line, you see other people there to get their COVID vaccine, and you hear the person at CVS tell those people that it's going to be an hour wait and they all turn around and walk out. Why aren't we driving the vaccine to the people who don't have it? Why aren't we making it easily and widely available in pharmacies and so that when you make these appointments, you actually get the vaccine when you make the appointment? Like I just said, a lot of these people need to be at work. You know, they don't have the comfort of working from their their desks. If we spent focusing more time on vaccine education and getting the vaccine to the people who, quote unquote, just haven't gotten around to it yet, and less time on these idiotic mask mandates, we might be able to make more progress. I mean, this is a hilarious article. This is from Newsweek, March 29th, 2021. Texas COVID cases dropped to record low nearly three weeks after mask mandate lifted. <laughs> Oh my God, coronavirus cases have dropped to a record low in Texas roughly three weeks after the state lifted its mask mandate and reopened businesses. Okay, guys, uh, that's it for Walla Moms. Please tell a friend, 
like, and subscribe. Give us a good rating on iTunes. And we are at Walla Moms Pod on Twitter. You can find us there. Thank you so much for the messages. Thank you for your feedback. I appreciate both critical feedback and non-critical feedback. As you know, I think we have to have a public conversation. And I think we have to talk to each other. Even if we disagree, the vaxxed and the unvaxxed. Yeah, that's right. I said it. You got to talk to the unvaxxed. I know you don't want to be around them. I know you don't. But how else are we going to get them educated? How else are we going to get them the data that they need? And how else are we going to understand their reasons for being unvaxxed? I mean, what is the point of this idiotic mask mandate that's going on forever that has absolutely no data to support it? This is silly. We are focused on all the wrong things because we can't talk to each other. We need to find out what's missing from that puzzle and see if we can't get more people vaccinated because we know that that works. And I know that a lot of you are against vaccines and we've talked about it. And for those of you who have not voiced your opinion and who haven't found me at Walla Mom's Pod on Twitter, I'm sure you'll find me soon to tell me that I can blow it out my ass with the vaccinations and that I need to listen to more Weinstein and Rogan. And I love Weinstein and Rogan, but I happen to disagree with them on this point. And I think they'd say, good for you. I don't think they'd begrudge me getting vaccinated. And that's what's important is that we can we be able to talk to each other and not engage in petty ad hominems or name calling like science deniers. You know who's a science denier? The people walking around alone with a cloth mask on. Y'all are science deniers. That would be like half of the city of Portland, Oregon. I still love you. I love you all. Thank you again for listening. Tell a friend to listen to the Walla Moms podcast where we talk about everything that you can't talk about in Portland. See you next time.